And Father, as we come to your word, we pray once again for our daily bread. We pray, Lord, that you would not only show us the glory and the goodness of Christ, but that you would also show us our desperate, desperate need for him. Fill our hearts with humility as we study your word in order that we may be corrected, reproved, trained for every good work of righteousness, all for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we will be covering verses 35 to 37 today. These are rich, rich verses. Uh, There are volumes that have been written just on these three verses. And of course, we did cover verses 35 and 36 last week. But wait, there's more. Uh, There's there's plenty to cover in those verses and uh, see how they connect to verse 37. So we'll be in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 37 today. You know, one of the things that has, over the years, just helped me tremendously to understand Scripture more consistently, um, was hearing a well-known preacher several years ago uh, declare that the Bible has one central theme. Sure, there are several themes throughout Scripture, but there is one overlapping theme that threads the needle through each of the themes that we find throughout Scripture. And that is this, the central theme is simply this, it is the certain success of all of God's plans and purposes. Everything that we read in Scripture must be read through the lens of that central theme, the certain success of all of God's plans and purposes. See, when a person opens up their Bible and they start reading the book of Genesis, it's really tempting to despair because immediately it appears that things spin out of control. Very quickly, man falls into sin in Genesis chapter 3, and the Garden of Eden is closed off. Outside of the garden, immediately, sin is just rampant among humanity. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. And by the time you get just three chapters past the fall, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, you read that, quote, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, not just some, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, if that doesn't cause you to be tempted to despair, I don't know what does. And by the way, the nature of the human heart has not changed. The same nature that those people had, whose thoughts were only evil continually, that persists today. But this nature of of man, we see it popping up over and over throughout the book of Genesis, sometimes even by God's own people. From the start of the book, it feels like things are just going from bad to worse, to, to even worse than that. They're just spinning out of control. And yet, by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, you're left with a sense of assurance that nothing is out of control, regardless of how it appears on the surface. You have an understanding that God is in control, he's sovereign, and that he's capable of even using man's plans, his evil plans and intentions, to accomplish every single one of his plans and purposes. 
After all, isn't that what Joseph says to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the theme of Genesis. That nothing is out of control, no matter how it might appear. And this is the theme that echoes not only through Genesis, but throughout all of Scripture, culminating with the book of Revelation, where all of God's plans and purposes are finally accomplished by the God who knows and who has declared the end from the beginning. Throughout Scripture, we are reminded that God is sovereign. Throughout Scripture, we are reminded that God cannot fail. If God could fail, think about this for a second, if God could fail to accomplish even one thing that he desires, then it's possible that he could be greater, more glorious, more successful, more efficient, more effective than he currently is, if he's capable of failing at anything. The good news is he's not. And, and what a great comfort it is to be reminded of that, to know that, to believe that, to stand on that, to live by that. Now, given what we've seen in John chapter 6, once again, some might be tempted to think that everything is just out of control and that God is not sovereign over everything. Some might be tempted to think that God not only can fail, but that indeed He has Think about what we've seen. We've seen the feeding of the 5,000, a total of somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people, see Jesus perform one of his greatest miracles, apart from the, uh, the, the, the resurrection, maybe his greatest miracle, certainly the one miracle with the most eyewitnesses, and yet the response of the people is not to believe. It's to desire instead to rise up against Jesus and take him by force. The response is not to submit to him. It's to try to force him to submit to them. The following day, they seek Jesus, but not because they have faith. Rather, because they're famished. They're hungry. They're expecting another meal from Jesus. And Jesus confronts their motivations for seeking him, challenging them to labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which he alone can give. And their response was, in turn, to ask, uh, what do we have to do? What, what, what work must we do? And Jesus tells them that the work of God is that they believe in him. And this brings us to what we saw last week, and that is that they demanded that Jesus prove that he's worth believing and following. And of course, we saw that if the miracle of feeding the 5,000, which is really feeding of the 5,000 families, if that wouldn't convince them, then nothing would. The reality is, not that they needed evidence, but they, they did not want to believe. Now, let me ask you, if 20,000 people have been ministered to and don't believe, did God fail? Did God not accomplish what he desired to accomplish? Did Jesus fail when these people refused to believe? If you believe that man is able by nature to believe, or if you believe that God wanted and did everything he possibly could do to convince these people and yet couldn't, then the conclusion is unescapable. Yes, God failed. God could have done better. But 
we have to be reminded of the fact that it is impossible for God to fail. It is impossible for God to fail, period, full, full stop, no exceptions. It is impossible for God to fail at anything. Now, in the previous passage, there were two doctrines that the passage illustrated for us. The first doctrine that the, uh, that, that passage illustrated for us is the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity, by the way, doesn't mean that man is as wicked as he could possibly be. Rather, the doctrine of total depravity simply means that man's will, by nature, is in bondage to sin, and that people, by nature, are so enslaved to sin, so in bondage to sin, so powerfully influenced by sin, that by nature they do not understand the things of God, nor do they desire the things of God. In the words found in Genesis, total depravity is the doctrine that by nature the wickedness of man is great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. That was the first doctrine that we saw last week, the doctrine of total depravity. The second doctrine that the previous passage illustrated for us is the exclusivity of Christ. That Christ is the bread of life. He alone is God's provision for imparting life to those who are dead, spiritually speaking. So we find these two great doctrines in the first two, doc, uh, first two verses of the passage that we're looking at today. Look at verses 35 and 36. We read this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. We must see that to come to Jesus is to believe in him. You see how those two clauses are parallel? He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. They're, they're parallel to one another. So to come to Jesus is to believe in him. It's the same as eating and drinking from him. But, and by the way, that is a figure of speech that will be very important later on in the chapter when Jesus tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. That's verse 53. There again, we find the two doctrines, the same two doctrines, the total depravity of man, that we have no life in ourselves apart from believing in Christ, and we also find the exclusivity of Christ, that life, that spiritual life, that is, is not found anywhere else but in Christ Jesus. So we should also understand that when Jesus says, he who comes to me will not hunger, he who believes in me will never thirst, he's not just talking about something that you did one time years ago. He's not just talking about an act that is done once and is never repeated. Uh, as James White observes on verses 35 and 36, he says this, quote, When Jesus describes the one who comes to him and who believes in him, he uses the present tense to describe this coming, believing, or in other passages, hearing or seeing. The present tense refers to a continuous, ongoing action, end quote. So in other words, 
This might better be translated if you were to translate it more literally word for word. He who continuously or he who perseveres in coming to me will not hunger. And he who continuously believes in me will never have thirst. Now that's important to understand given that these people that he's speaking to have come to him. So the question then becomes, do they persevere in coming to him? Do they keep coming to him? And the answer is found at the end of the chapter where they stop coming. They, They walk away from him. And thus they are in no way recipients of the blessings found in him. See, saving faith is much more than just coming to him once, believing in him once, and you say a prayer, you walk down the aisle, you do whatever, and then you walk out the door and you live your life however you choose. That's not saving faith. That's not how saving faith works. No, saving faith is a faith that perseveres. Saving faith is a faith that continually over and over and over, finds satisfaction in Christ. And thus the individual continually comes to Christ for their daily bread. And there is no other means of receiving the providential blessings of God than in Christ Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus see in the hearts of these people? What does he see in these multitudes of people who just the day before witnessed this miracle and have heard the gospel? He says, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. This is the fruit of man's natural condition. Unbelief. Steadfast. Continual unbelief. They are in bondage to sin. They are slaves to sin. And they wouldn't want it any other way. By nature, neither would you and neither would I. Neither would anybody. So this is Jesus' way of saying, you have seen more than enough. You don't need more evidence. You have all the proof that's necessary for believing, and yet you don't. You have all the evidence you need to justify obedience and faith, and yet you persist in rebellion. See, when we say that a man is unable to come to Christ by nature, we mean that he is in bondage to sin, that he is a slave to sin. That means he does what sin dictates. Sin is the one that informs every decision he makes. Sin is his master. Sin rules him. Sin rules every single thought, every single decision that he makes, every object of his desire. And yet, a person has no excuse before God for his or her refusal to believe. Now you might be wondering, how is that even possible? How is that just? The answer is, as James Montgomery Boyce notes, he says, quote, the inability of man in spiritual things is not a physical inability. End quote. So think of it this way. Think back to the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Now, if Jesus had gone to the pool of Bethesda and said, okay, whoever desires to be healed among all you cripples who can't walk, come on over here and I'll heal you. Would that be just? Absolutely not. Because they can't. They, they physically cannot do what is required. 
But what if instead he had asked, okay, who desires to come to me? Uh, now, now we're talking about something much deeper than just physical ability or inability. Now we're talking about something deeper. Now we're talking about the desires of man. The heart of man has nothing to do with being limited physically. Who desires to come to me? And of course, the answer was nobody. After Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, nobody said, hey, can you heal me too? See, it has everything to do with what they desire or despise. And that is what God holds man accountable for. That is where man's guilt is found. Boyce notes that, quote, the full tragedy of man's situation, apart from God's grace, is that man will not admit his need and will not come to the Lord Jesus Christ to have that need met, end quote. Why not? Why won't he come to Jesus to have that need met? Because he doesn't desire to. Because he desires things other than the remedy which God himself has provided. And because man's thoughts are only evil continually. Now somebody might say, well, what about John 3.16? Doesn't John 3.16 say, whosoever believes? And the answer, well, first of all, I would say the Greek is better translated as the one believing rather than whosoever. But never mind that. Even if you prefer to use the word whosoever, that word can work. The question is not who may come, because anyone may come to Christ. The door is open for all. The question is who wills to come? Who will come? And the answer is, only those who have been born from above, regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, to see and understand not only their own condition, but to see and understand and desire rightly the free offer of redemption in Christ Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what must come before seeing the kingdom of God? He must be born again. And you might say, well, what about free will? Don't, don't we all have free will? And of course, the Bible affirms that free will exists. Every theologian throughout history uh, that I'm aware of, uh, at least within orthodoxy, affirms that free will does exist. That's why man is held responsible for his refusal to come to Jesus. But free will is nevertheless a will that is in bondage to sin. It's not unlimited. We've talked about this before. You can't just be whatever you will yourself to be. You can't just do whatever you will yourself to do. You can only operate within the walls of your nature. You can't do things that are outside of your nature, and so you're unable to, to change. You're unable to get outside of your nature. And that leads us to a second response to this objection, and that is that man's free will by nature is powerless to do what God requires. Let me illustrate this for you in a way that nobody can argue against. And I'll do this by, by just asking you a simple question. How many of you, no need to show your hands or anything, because it should be everybody, but how many of you desire to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength? How many of you desire that? 
Okay, it should be everybody. How many of you do it? Nobody. You desire it. That's your will. But you don't do it. And indeed, you can't do it. The one who says he has no sin within himself doesn't have the truth. The answer, of course, is everybody wants to do it. Everybody who's a Christian should at least want to love God that way. And yet, cannot. Even as a Christian, our wills are powerless to do exactly what we desire. And if you, as a Christian, cannot love God as you ought to, how much more can we say this of the person who has not been born again, whose thoughts and intentions are only evil continually? As Augustine once wrote, free will without grace has the power to do nothing but sin. What a terrifying reality that man will not, of his own nature or doing, believe. He, he will not, of his own nature or doing, come to Christ. It, it appears from a human perspective, it appears that man's total depravity would be an obstacle that would render God's plans of redemption null and void, ineffective, impossible to achieve. And yet, it is impossible for God's plans to fail. If he desires to do something, there is nothing that can stand in his way. His will, his plans cannot be thwarted. They are unchanging because he is unchanging. See, when, when you consider these two doctrines, man's total depravity, God's Exclusive offer of life in Christ alone. There's a tension there, isn't there? If man, by nature, will not come to Christ in true saving faith, and yet coming to Christ is necessary for life, for receiving eternal life, how will anyone receive eternal life? That's the implied question that Jesus is going to answer in the verse that follows. Verse 37. He continues saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. If man, by nature, will not come to Christ in true saving faith, and yet coming to Christ is necessary for receiving eternal life, how will anyone receive eternal life? The answer that's revealed in this verse is simply this. By the sovereign grace of God. Why do you or I desire differently from somebody who doesn't believe, who, who has not been born again? Why do we love God? Why do we desire God while they don't desire God and don't love Him? The sovereign grace of God. See, Christ isn't speaking in terms of, of theory here. He's not being hypothetical. No, he's not speaking in a way that reveals that you know, he's going to do the work that's been given to him and then just hope for the best. No, he speaks of a certain outcome. 
That being that God's plans and God's purposes will all succeed. That his plans and purposes will prevail because a people will come to him, will believe in him, will receive life from him. Who are those people? Those given him by the Father. And he protects them. He takes them and receives them and preserves them. All of the people given to Christ. All of the people given to the Son of God by the Father will come to him. Will believe in him. It is not theoretical. It is not just potential. It is actual. It is certain. On what basis will these people come to him? The answer is God's sovereign election. See, the Father doesn't give people to Christ based on their response to the gospel. No, their thoughts and intentions are only evil continually apart from His grace. Because by nature, so by nature, their their response to the gospel is to reject it. The Father doesn't give people to the Son because they're going to believe. Uh, He doesn't give them uh, to to him because they're better in some way than everybody else uh, who, who does come to him. No, in God's eyes, none are good. None. So the reality is, man's actions do not determine or affect God's plans. Let me say that again. Man's actions do not determine and do not affect God's plans. And thus, God's plans are not thwarted. See, see if, if man's will, if man's actions did determine God's plans or affect God's plans, then man would be the one who is sovereign. And we would have our way. We, we would have our way, the, the way nature directs us and all of humanity would end up in hell. If the Father gives us to Christ based on anything within us or about us, then his giving of us to him is by merit and not by grace. And Scripture's testimony is that the Father gives people to the Son because they have been chosen in eternity past, not because of anything good or worthy or commendable within themselves. Certainly not because they chose him, on their own, despite their nature. No, they, they, are, they have to operate within the capacity of their nature. That's made evident uh, by Jesus stating the same truth negatively down in verse 44. Look at verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So who comes to Christ? Only those given to Christ by the Father. How do they come? They're drawn by the Father. Are there any who are drawn who do not come? No. All who are given to him by the Father will come. Jesus doesn't say that people might come. He doesn't say that they'll have an opportunity to come as if they might decline the offer. No, what Jesus says here leaves no possibility of God's plans of redemption failing. All that the Father has given to the Son will come. If the Father has chosen a person to come to Christ, they will come by grace alone 
through faith alone in Christ alone. And this is why Jesus did not fail in his mission to seek and save the lost. This is why you came to Christ. This is why I came to Christ. This is why anyone comes to Christ because we were given to him by the Father and all who are given to him by the Father will come. Conversely, this explains why these 20,000 plus people who saw Jesus uh, do this feeding of the, of the 20,000 people the previous day continue in their steadfast unbelief. They continue to refuse to believe. See, when we think of salvation, we tend to emphasize our choice, and rightly so, uh, because a person must choose to come to Christ. Uh, the, the, we, we call people to come to Christ but what Scripture reveals is that our ability to choose is limited by our nature. And as we've seen, reason also irrefutably demonstrates this. Uh, so Scripture reveals it, reason reveals it, so nature reveals it. But what we have to understand is that if you have chosen to come to Christ, if any choose to truly come to Christ, it's by God's sovereign electing grace. It's because we have been given to Christ by the Father. When we think of salvation, we also tend to think of ourselves as being the recipients in this transaction. And while there is truly a sense in which we have been recipients, the primary recipient, according to this verse, the primary recipient in God's plan of redemption isn't us. It's Jesus. All that the Father gives the Son will come to Him. Let's remember that to come to Him is to believe in Him. And we see, we see those two phrases put together back in verse 35. To come to Him is to believe in Him. And thus we see that all who are given to the, uh, to the Son by the Father will believe. They will have true saving faith. In Christ. There will be none who resist, none who are supposed to have believed and yet did not, none who, for whatever reason, do not come to faith in Christ. All will come. All will come. The Bible tells us of what we refer to as the covenant of redemption. Kind of like you don't find the word trinity in the bible but you find the concept of the trinity certainly taught in the bible you won't find the title covenant of redemption in scripture but you certainly do find the concept throughout scripture uh, one of those passages being isaiah 53 which we read earlier uh, but uh, we see this throughout scripture we see this throughout the new testament ephesians 1 4 says that god chose us in him before the foundation of the world uh, this is also a theme that we especially find, uh, the, the place that you find it uh, most richly taught is in Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in, uh, in John chapter 17. In verses 1 and 2, he prays to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. It's past tense. All whom you have given to him. So to whom does Jesus give eternal life according to those two verses? He gives eternal life to those given him by the Father. Given, it's past tense, uh, have given when? In, in eternity. 
and the tense changes to the present, to, to within time, that he may give them eternal life. Uh, consider also verse 6, John chapter 17, verse 6, where Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Who did he manifest his name to? Those given to him by the Father. Uh, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Who kept his word? That, that means to obey. That means to obey what God commands. Who does that? To, and to whose name was the, Father, uh, the Father's name manifested? Those given to Christ. A group that is set apart, separated from the world as a whole. And the fruit of their election is faithful obedience keeping his word, all in accordance with this covenant of redemption. Again, verses 9 and 10 in John 17, we read of this covenant of redemption where Jesus prays, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, two groups of people here, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have, I have been glorified in them. See, Jesus isn't praying on behalf of the world. He's not saying, please bring somebody to me. No, he's not praying in hopes that somebody would believe. He's praying on behalf of those who would certainly believe because they were given to Christ by the Father in eternity past. And finally, uh, we see in verse 24, John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. As certainly as the Father has given him glory, he has given Christ a people. Do you see this phrase that keeps getting repeated when he refers to his people, to those who would believe? They are referred to as those whom you have given me. Past tense. So apart from God's electing grace, his sovereign electing grace, a person can be confronted with the gospel. They can see the gospel and see the most amazing evidence, see the most amazing miracles, but will choose of their own doing to pass on the free offer of salvation. That's their nature. That's man's nature. His thoughts and intentions are only evil continually by nature. So, if you have indeed believed savingly believed. It's because you have been given to the Son by the Father in accordance with this covenant of redemption. If you believe, it's because you've been given to Christ by the Father. God has ordained not only the end that you would be saved, that you would be given to Christ, but he has ordained the means to that end, that you would hear the gospel preached and that you would believe. For your sake, yes, but also for the sake of Christ. And understanding this, understanding this covenant of redemption, and understanding that, that we are a gift that has been given to the Son by the Father, this helps us to understand exactly what it means to be a Christian, exactly what it means to be in Christ. 
See, salvation isn't ultimately about our happiness or our blessedness, although we certainly will be happy, we will be satisfied and blessed in Christ, but salvation is ultimately about a gift from the Father to the Son. Henry Ironside, the great preacher and author of yesteryear, refers to this as, quote, the great mystery of the divine sovereignty of God. He writes this, he says, quote, God will never be defeated. His purpose will never fail of accomplishment. All that the Father has given to Jesus shall come to him. You do not like that, perhaps. You say you do not believe in election or predestination. Then you will have to tear a number of pages out of your Bible, for there are many of them which magnify God's sovereign electing grace, end quote. And by the way, Ironside was an Arminian. He nevertheless understood there there is this doctrine of predestination and election. See, the wonderful thing about verse 37 is that it places these two doctrines side by side. The, The doctrine of election, God's sovereignty, right next to the responsibility of man. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son and Look what Jesus says immediately after that. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So the burden is basically thrown right back into man's court. We have a responsibility to come. And we can be confident that if we do, Christ will not cast us away. He will not throw us out. He doesn't say he probably won't cast us out. He doesn't say I won't cast you out unless I absolutely have to. Now again, the language indicates that their security, that the security of their salvation is certain. It's guaranteed. And we should see, by the way, that the word comes is once again in the present tense, indicating an ongoing action. Thus, it might help to translate it to say, the one who is coming or the one who persists in coming to me, I will never cast out. The subject of this clause has just been carried over three times here, in case you haven't seen that, from verse 35 through the first clause of verse 37 into the second half of verse 37. And that cla- the subject of that clause is the one who comes or, or is coming. This is the one given by the Father to the Son. And this is the one who will never be cast out. The Son will never ever reject the gift of the Father. And this is a reminder that salvation isn't just a one-time event. It's not just something that you do once and you walk out the door and it's okay to forget about it because you're good. You did what you had to do. Now you can just go back to living your life however you want. That's not how it is. It's not a matter of you know, saying a prayer. It's not a matter of walking you know, down the aisle during a worship service with soft and uh, emotionally manipulating music and lights and lasers and all that type of stuff. No, this is a continuous, perpetual action. We don't just believe and walk away. That, that, that doesn't guarantee anybody's salvation. That's not, that's not where the assurance is found. That's not what saving faith looks like. No, saving faith continues. It perseveres in looking to Christ, feasting on Christ, finding nourishment and satisfaction for their souls in Christ. 
not just once, but continually. This is the doctrine that we would refer to as the perseverance of the saints. Our faith will last. Our faith will persevere. We won't just come to Christ for a season of life only to walk away from Him and try to find nourishment or try to find satisfaction for our souls someplace else. No, those who are given to Christ by the Father will all persevere. Their faith will endure and Christ will never turn such a person away. He will never deny them. He will never cast them out. Christ actually emphasizes this with very strong language that gets lost in the translation. James White notes this. He says, quote, Literally, the Greek reads, The one coming to me, no, never shall I cast out. The language emphatically denies that it is at all possible that the Lord Jesus would ever, ever cast out one who comes to him for refuge, one who trusts in him for salvation, end quote. Now, see, in English, English is very different than Greek. In English, if you put two negatives next to each other, what do you get? You get a positive. Or you know, we would call that a double negative, right? Uh, or to, to state that as a double negative, uh, in English, a double negative isn't not a positive. <laughs> you get the point. But in Greek, when you put two negatives together like that, it's to make what's being said emphatic. It's, it's to draw attention to it. It's to underline it. He will never, underlined, bold print, big font, he will never cast out those who come to him, who come to him truly, perpetually, savingly. This is the wonderful truth of the gospel, friends. The comfort of the gospel is that whatever God desires, he accomplishes. Whatever work he begins, he finishes. Whatever he requires, he provides. He enables. He ensures. And those who reject God's free offer of salvation do not nullify or thwart God's plans and purposes. God reigns supreme over all despite man's perpetual rejection and rebellion. Even a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from his will and sovereign decree. And we're presented with the promise that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, no matter where you come from, regardless of your history, regardless of your social standing, if you come to Jesus, he will welcome you with open arms and he will receive you. You will never be cast out. This is an invitation to all to come to Him and to be preserved in Him, to persevere in coming to Him. And all who come to Christ this way, all who are believing in Him, are as safe in their salvation as Jesus is faithful. They are as secure in their salvation as Jesus is mighty to save. These people to whom our Lord spoke could never say that God was unjust with them because the gospel was just preached to them. It was presented to them. The free offer of salvation in Christ alone was made to them. And what did they do? Remember that these people represent all of humanity. 
20,000 plus people. It's been preached to them. The gospel's been preached to them. What do they do? They refuse to come to Jesus. They refuse to believe. They would not believe, even though they had more than enough reasons to believe. Friends, I beg you not to let that ever, ever be said of you. Some might say that they're uncomfortable with the doctrine of election or predestination because it makes them feel afraid that they haven't been elected, that that God wouldn't elect someone like them. I've I've wrestled with that. It it, it stems from kind of a a low self-perception, a low self-image. If election is true, then I might not be elect because why would God save somebody like me? But you have to realize that the only person who would worry about that The only person who would be concerned about whether or not they are elect and thus desire that God would save them is the elect. So rather than filling us with fear, if we understand, if we have a right understanding of the doctrine of election, it doesn't fill us with fear. It fills us with assurance. Because why would we even be worrying about that? If it's true, and it is, that by nature, man's thoughts and intentions are only evil continually. Is it evil to desire that God would save you? Of course not, right? That would be silly, right? And so, if you desire that God would save you, if you believe in Christ and desire that God would save you, you're elect. So, instead of filling us with fear, it, it... It makes us feel assured. It fills us with a humble, thankful confidence, knowing that if salvation did depend on us by nature, being left alone in our nature, we would surely be lost forever. And we wouldn't care. We wouldn't worry about whether we were elect or not. There's never been one lost person who has worried about whether or not they were elect. Friends, Jesus spoke these words to explain why he didn't despair at the unbelief of these people. He continued to minister confidently, knowing that the outcome of his labor was certain. It was sure. And friends, if you are faithful to evangelize, if you are faithful to share the gospel with unbelievers, you will face the temptation to despair when they don't, when they don't believe. But only if you look at your labor for the gospel from a human perspective. The doctrine of election ensures the success of every single evangelistic effort, all given by the Father to the Son, will come, will believe. There's no question about the outcome. A.W. Pink notes this. He says, quote, Take heart, fellow worker. You may seem to be sowing the seed at random, but God will see to it that part of it falls on the ground which he has prepared. End quote. Or, if you prefer, in the words of Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The doctrine of election when understood correctly, smashes, annihilates human pride. 
See, if I think that the reason that I'm a Christian is because I freely chose to believe in a saving manner, then I also have to wonder what in the world is wrong with these 20,000 plus people who refuse to believe. See, I'm inclined to, to kind of look down my nose at them and say, well, well, I believed. I mean, you guys saw the miracle. You guys actually got to see Jesus in person, and you didn't believe. I didn't see Jesus in person. I didn't see a miracle, and I believe. You see where that leads to pride? See, if I don't understand that it's all by God's grace that I should be found in Christ, then I inherently must think that I must be at least a little bit smarter, a little bit better, a little bit more reasonable than the person who hasn't believed. But this is not the case. The doctrine of election humbles us. It reminds us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, he says that no man may boast before God and that it is by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Who's doing? It's by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not by our doing. And therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Richard Phillips notes, Richard Phillips notes in his commentary, as we study these great truths, it is essential that we be enthralled, that we not be merely enthralled with the doctrines, much less with our differences with other Christians who do not accept them. Rather, the obvious point is that our minds and hearts should be directed with renewed fervor to Jesus himself. End quote. And friends, that is what I pray for you today. I pray that whether or not you agree with uh, with the understanding of salvation that was shared by saints throughout the ages from Augustine to Tyndale to Luther to Calvin to Spurgeon. I, I pray that your hearts and minds, whether you agree with their understanding or not, would see the goodness and the graciousness of God in sending His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to ransom and redeem those whom the Father gives to Him. This gift from the Father will be received entirely and certainly by the Son who will cherish that gift and who will protect that gift. God never fails. Christ never fails. None who are given to Him will ever be lost. Our salvation, friends, our salvation is certain because God's plans and purposes are all certain. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are a God who is holy and who cannot be in the presence of sin. And Father, we also recognize the truth of what your scripture, uh, what your word attests that by nature, we don't seek you, we don't do good. Our thoughts and our intents are only evil continually by nature. But you sent Jesus to do what was necessary to reconcile and redeem all who believe in him, all who are given to him by you. And it's your doing, not ours. Father, we pray that this would fill us not only with humility, but with thankfulness. 
with a desire to not only worship you in spirit and in truth, but to live lives that are conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Thank you for doing what was necessary for our redemption. Thank you for choosing us of your own sovereign graciousness, not because of anything that we have done. We pray, Lord, for those around us. We pray for family members who don't believe. We pray for co-workers who don't believe. We pray for neighbors who don't believe. We pray for opportunities to share the gospel with them, and we pray for the boldness, the courage to do so, knowing that all who are given to the Son by the Father will come. Teach us, O Lord, to do your will. Teach us to keep your word in order that Christ may be glorified through the preaching of the gospel and the certain success of your plans from eternity past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.